Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hi, my name is Julie Fink with the Front Porch People. We'd like to thank Visible Voice Books for sponsoring the Novel Conversations giveaway, which gives listeners a chance to win all eight classic novels featured in our third season. Visible Voice Books is our local go-to for delving into our favorite books in a relaxed, inviting environment. And if you're not here in Cleveland, Ohio, you can always support Visible Voice Books by shopping online at visiblevoicebooks.com. Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo and this is Novel Conversations. Today I'm going to have a conversation about the novel The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. And I'll be joined in my conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. Ildi and Scott, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Ildi, Scott, before we get started, let me read a quick introduction to our novel today. Published in 1936, Grapes of Wrath is the Pulitzer Prize winning story of the Jode family, but also the story of a country and the story of a time the story of America and the Depression. Through the trials of Ma, Pa, and Tom Joad, Okies fleeing the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma, John Steinbeck captures a turbulent moment in American history, describes the plight of migrant workers, and also offers a pointed criticism to the economic system of that time. Ildi, let me ask you, is this the first time you read Grapes of Wrath? It is. I only ever had a stereotypical idea of the Depression, which probably comes from this because I've heard this is the definitive work on the Depression. Other than that, I knew it was dusty, and that's about it. (laughs) Scott, let me ask you, is this the first time you read Grapes of Wrath? Yes, it is. Scott, I understand you have some sort of a personal connection to this story. Well, the story, as Steinbeck says, is all about Okies specifically, but in with that mix were the Arkies, and I am proud to say that I have some of that Arkie blood. But you also have some of that California blood. Precisely. My father's mother grew up in California and was a child when all of the Okies and Arkies and Kansans and Missourians and Panhandle Texans migrated to California. She was there to see them coming somewhat. And my grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side both migrated to California. My grandmother from Arkansas, my grandfather from Missouri. So generations of your family really experienced both sides of the story. Precisely. In fact, I never was motivated to read this novel because I just listened to some of Grandpa's stories about jumping on the trains to get to California. Ildi, in your opening remarks, you talked about the atmospherics that John Steinbeck writes about. The dust and the dirt and the perspiration. 
Is there anything else that you'll take away from this novel? There's a lot more specific information about how people actually lived and got through it or didn't get through it for that matter. But I now understand that it's not just an economic term, the Depression. John Steinbeck makes the Depression that we've all read about and heard about very personal in this novel. Absolutely. And you, as a reader, can become engulfed in it and depressed yourself. More than just sad, some of what he writes will make you angry about the way people were treated. Absolutely. That's definitely true. Well, Ildi Scott, let's start our story of the Jode family. Tell me about the first member of the Jode family that we meet. We meet Tom Jode walking down a dirt road, and he's just returning from prison. He's been in jail for about the last four and a half years, and he's now out on parole. He's been in McAllister Prison for homicide, which the neighbors say wasn't all his fault. Essentially self-defense. Essentially. Well, Scott, where's Tom Jode headed? He's heading to the family farm just outside of Salisaw, Oklahoma. And he quickly meets up with an old friend, a traveling preacher by the name of Casey. Actually, Scott, the preacher himself tells us he's a former traveling preacher. Very true. But he still has that preachy tone of voice, which he can't get rid of. But Ildi, Tom's not being accompanied just by the preacher Casey. He's actually got a little critter with him. Well, he didn't want to go home empty-handed. He does have younger siblings, so he picks up a turtle, a little land turtle, and is going to make a present of it to his siblings. And I understand you consider this turtle to be a metaphor for the entire novel. I absolutely do. The land turtle keeps on getting picked up, moved, put back down, almost run over by cars, sometimes run over, has near-death experiences. He's picked at by a cat. And then he, you know, clams up into his shell, but then comes back out and keeps going. He keeps on going. But let's get back to Tom, Jode, and the preacher Casey. What happens when they get to the Jode farm? Things just aren't right. There's crops growing in the front yard, and they don't see any people around. Well, what's happening? On closer inspection, they see that a part of the house has been taken out and... It is completely devoid of anything valuable and is vacant. So no Jode family on the Jode farm? Nope. Mm -mm. But quickly we find out what happened to Tom's family. There's another character comes by. Another local vagabond. Muley Graves. What do we learn about Muley Graves? Well, his family has done gone on to California, but he himself just can't bear to leave. He informs Tom and Casey that the tractors have come and demolished pretty much all the houses because the houses are owned by the banks and the banks are now foreclosing on the houses. And if the people can't pay, then they're just going to farm the land or plow it over. And taking out the house with the tractor accidentally forces the families who no longer own the ground to leave. There's no living left for them on these family farms. They still have the ability to feed themselves for the most part, but they couldn't feed themselves and pay the daily bills. Well, sure, as long as they actually had the land. Yes, they could survive. They could grow something or perhaps raise a few chickens and pigs and survive. But once they owed so much that the bank foreclosed, they don't even have that land for sustenance. Right, and at that point, they have to hit the road. But still, you need to tell me what's happened to the Jode family. Muley says they've gone to your Uncle John's. And Uncle John only lives a few miles away. Well, then I guess like the turtle, Tom Jode and Preacher Casey need to move on. And it's a good thing, too. Why is that? Because the Jodes are getting ready to leave. 
Yeah, Tom catches them literally a day before they're about to abandon Uncle John's farm and head west themselves. Tell me a little bit about some of the preparations they're making for this trip. Well, they've bought an old Hudson sedan. A Hudson 26. That's right. They cut it roughly in half and built a truck bed on the back half. Grandma in the rocker chair in the back of that truck. (laughs) It's a Frankenstein car. But fortunately, they do have Tom's brother, Al, who is quite a hand at mechanics. Actually, we meet the whole Jode family at this time. Why don't you quickly run down all the Jodes? Okay. There is Grandma and Grandpa. You have Ma and Pa Jode. You have Tom's siblings, Rose of Sharon. But Tom pronounces it Rosa Sharn. Rosa Sharn, right. And her husband, Connie, and they're also expecting. And he has his brother, Al, who is a little bit younger than him. And he has two younger siblings, a sister, Ruthie, and the youngest son, Winfield. But wait, Ildi, you forgot about Tom's brother, Noah. Oh, Noah, I forgot about Noah. Oops. And that's Noah's problem. Everybody forgets about Noah. That's true. I fell into the trap. Scott, tell me a little bit about Tom's brother, Noah. Noah is the oldest, and when he was being born, Pa panicked and kind of grabbed Noah and pulled. And Pa thinks that his face kind of looks elongated and a little twisted from where his thumbs pulled on his face when he was being born. And all his life, Pa blames himself for Noah just not quite looking right and not quite acting right. Well, is this entire family going to get in this truck and go to California? They sure are. Some will ride in the cab, some on top of the mattresses on top of the back bed, underneath the tarpaulin they're going to set up. That's right. Let's be clear about what's in this truck. While they sold most of their possessions to raise money for this trip, they've kept things like tools, pots and pans, four or five mattresses. I think there's even a couple of kegs of salted pork in that truck. This is a pretty well-packed truck. But Ildi, even though the family's glad to see Tom, and certainly they can use another driver on their journey out west, he does throw a wrench into their plans. He has to break his parole. But Tom has it all figured out. He thinks there's so many people moving now. If he doesn't cause any trouble where they're going, they have no reason to look for him. They have no reason to find him, and he should be safe. And sure enough, two mornings later, they're out on Highway 66 heading west. Away they go. And the first day or two or three, things move along all right. They travel mostly by day. They're stopping and pulling off to the side of the road at night, pitching a quick tent making a little bacon, making some potatoes, and moving on. And Scott, for Grandpa, it is only a few days. It is. All of a sudden, he has a massive stroke, and he's good and done right there. And there's a problem because it's illegal to bury somebody, but they haven't got the money to make it out to California and pay for a nice funeral for him. That's right. Their first dilemma has struck. They can spend $40 and have a proper burial, Or they can basically turn him over to the county, and then he'll end up in a pauper's grave. Right, but Pa and Uncle John make the decision a man has a right to bury their own father. So even though it's illegal, they're going to bury Grandpa by the road with a bottle that contains a note that explains how he died so that someone won't think some malfeasance occurred. But Scott, the Jode family doesn't have any time for sentimentality over Grandpa's grave. They've got to get back on the road. They've got to get to California. Every day is another dollar. They have too many days. The dollars will run out before they get there. But Scott, we haven't mentioned why they're going to California. The rumor is, the word is, and the handbills which get passed around to let people know, there is fruit and other crops galore in California just waiting to be harvested by someone willing to do the work. 
these handbills called for about 800 workers on this one farm. Every family that the Jodes meet has a handbill. They wouldn't have printed all these handbills if they didn't really need us. Right. They're still naive and honest. <laughs> but Ildi, pretty soon on their journey, they do start encountering people on their way back from California. Right. And each person they encounter that is coming home says that there's no work, there's no food, it's horrible there, we'd rather starve in our old home. With people we know. And yet the ones heading to California will say, but look, I've got the handbill. The handbill says there's work? And the people coming home say, you just got to learn the hard way then. And the Jodes keep going. Just like the turtle. Tell me a little bit about the journey the Jodes are on. The path itself is not overly treacherous. There's a decent road. There's plenty of gas stations. There's one straight road, Route 66. One road takes you all the way to California. Right to Bakersfield, they tell us. The problem is they cannot afford a decent car in decent condition. And so in the heat, there are deserts. Radiators boil over. Tires blow. Engines go out. Dishonest car salesmen will fill crankcases with oily sawdust so they sound okay at first. But by the time you're on the road for a day and a half, poof, goes out. Boy, oh boy, Scott, that's a pretty depressing list of characters and situations. But Scott, finally, they do reach California, but they're not quite yet at their promised land. That's right. First, they get over the border, take a nice long bath in the cold mountain water flowing along the border. They still have to get past one more desert and over one more set of hills, and then they'll be in the central valley of the San Joaquin River. But, Ildi, while all the Joad family sees the promised land, the whole Jode family doesn't make it to the promised land. Right. When they're taking their long, leisurely bathe in the river, Noah decides, I've been in that water. I love it. I'm staying right here. Don't ever want to leave it. So he goes up to Tom, tells Tom, you tell the others. I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Man can never starve to death if he's got fish in the river. And literally, Noah just walks off. Walks on down the river. And while Ma Joe takes this pretty hard, the rest of the family seems to take it in stride and they move on through the desert. Pa blames himself, of course, but gets over it pretty quickly and they head off during the night because it's awful to go during the day through the desert. But they do make it through the desert. Yes, they do. What's happening now? Well, Ma's been up all night with a sick grandma. But grandma's no longer sick. She has since passed away. But Ma did not want to tell anyone for fear that they wouldn't make it through the desert. So finally, the Jode family reaches the promised land. In the morning, they look down upon the Central Valley, which they've never seen the likes of. It's green. It's lush. Mountains on either side, flat, fertile fields of every type of crop and orchard as far as you can see. And everything is starting to be in bloom. Well, Scott Ildi, I'm curious whether the Jodes are going to get jobs picking peaches, picking grapes, or picking oranges. But before they can actually go look for a job, there is one other little detail they've got to take care of. They've got to bury Grandma. Their first stop in the Central Valley of California is a town called Bakersfield, and they go to the coroner's office, where they drop Grandma off and pay $5 for the services. But wait a minute, it was good enough for Grandpa to be buried on the side of the road, but not Grandma? Grandma really would have loved a proper religious funeral. So Ma kind of insisted that she be at least taken to the coroner's office. Well, Scott, now that they've buried Grandma, do they go get that first picking job? No, the trip to Bakersfield took a good chunk of the day. So 
Now they need a place to get a little bit of rest, spend the night, and then the next day they'll be ready to start fully rested. And they actually end up pulling into what's called a Hooverville, kind of a shantytown camp. A squatter's camp. And of course run into many, many people in the exact same situation they are. But these people are different than the people they camped with on the road. These people have been in California for some time already, and they are already quite... Disillusioned. Yes. But Scott, Ildi, I have a handbill here. It says there's plenty of work. And people at this camp say, wake up, mister, use your head. The more handbills they get out there, the more people they get out here, and the less they have to pay the people. So you mean there's no work? You might get lucky, but I ain't worked in weeks. And that's the story of everyone there. And they're embittered. Well, do the Jodes find work? Not yet, because... A little kerfuffle happens at this camp. A gentleman pulls in with a very nice car, says he's recruiting laborers. And the Jodes are quick to volunteer, but then one of the voices, who's more experienced, speaks up and says, How much are you going to pay? What's the wage? Where am I going to go? What's your name? I want to be on a list, etc. And you catch on very quickly, says, Well, I can't quite figure for sure yet. I'm thinking about 30 cents an hour. And then when the men actually get to the work site, it turns out the wage is, let's say, 25 cents an hour. Right. And they use their last dollar to buy the gas to get there. So out steps the deputy sheriff. This may have been a complete setup from square one. They're trying to round these guys up and get them out of town. And Ildi, whose voice gets raised the loudest during this little kerfuffle, as you said? Tom Jode, who shouldn't be getting into trouble to begin with. That's right. I thought Tom had to stay out of trouble. After all, he's broken parole to go to California with his family. Right. Tom just can't stand to see injustice. And as the sheriff starts running after the original naysayer, Tom trips him. Man falls down, pulls out a gun, and starts taking shots at the man running away. And then who steps up? Casey. The preacher? Who also hates injustices. When a woman's hand is hit by one of these stray bullets, Casey kicks the sheriff, knocking him out cold. And then Casey realizes the danger that Tom is in and decides that Tom should go hide in the bushes and Casey will take the fall for him. And that's exactly what happens. Once the sheriff comes to, preacher Casey gets arrested and hauled off. And he's smiling because he feels that he has owed the Jodes so much for taking him out here. And this is a way that he can pay back his gratitude by saving Tom. And thereby saving and helping the entire Jode family. Exactly. But actually what happens next is no help to the Jode family. Because of this altercation at the camp, townsmen are going to show up like a lynching mob to burn the camp. And of course, all the migrant workers at the camp have to flee. That's right. So before the Jodes can even get a job in this area, they've got to leave. And don't forget, this is where Rosa Sharn's husband, Connie, up and abandons the family. It seems the realization that this is going to be a lot of hard work and they may not have the means to do anything that he hopes to do anytime soon. And his wife gives him one judgmental glance and he just disappears. They never see him again. He buckles. Well, now we've got the very much diminished Jode family leaving this area and this Hooverville camp. Where do they go next? They had heard a child mention something about a government camp. And they asked one of the person who said, yeah, there's a government camp and it's great. Let's talk about this government camp a little bit because this actually is a great spot for them to land. Marvelous. Warm water, flushing toilets, showers. It's clean. They get credit at the store if they have no food. Lynching mobs and deputy sheriffs aren't allowed unless there's a warrant. 
That's right. Let's be clear. Because this is a federal camp, the local and state authorities cannot come into the camp unless there's some trouble. Right. Correct. It sounds like this would be a perfect utopia, except for the fact there's still no jobs. Correct. No work anywhere. Within a month, the money's gone. There's a $5 limit on the credit at the grocery store. And Ma decides there's nothing to do but head north and look for work. Just like the turtle, they've got to keep moving. They get in their truck and they hit the road again. Unfortunately, they get a flat tire. Actually, fortunately, they get a flat tire. That's right. For while they are fixing that flat tire, a very nice roadster automobile pulls up with a well-dressed man adorned with gold jewelry. Says, you people looking for work? We sure are, they said. And what's he tell them? 40 miles away, the Hooper Ranch. If you can pick peaches, head straight on over. Tell them I sent you. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they do. They head up to the Hooper Ranch to pick peaches. They're elated. But that elation quickly changes to trepidation? Well, as soon as they pull up, there is a congestion on the road where there's all these cop cars and there's people along the side of the road yelling and screaming. And all of a sudden, one of the cops comes up. And by this time in the novel, you're a leery of any cop. And they come over and they say, well, where are you going? We're looking for work. They said, okay, this is another part of the caravan. Cops in front and cops behind chauffeur them to the Hooper Ranch. They're actually escorted by the cops through the gates of this ranch, which are quickly locked behind them. All signs that something is awry. Turns out this is a labor strike. These men were all promised five cents per bucket of peaches, and that price was quickly reduced to two and a half cents per bucket. They all realized they couldn't feed their families on two and a half cents per bucket, and so they've struck. Well, what do the Joads think they're going to get for a bucket of peaches? The Joads weren't promised a salary, but they do receive five cents per bucket, just so long as the peaches were not bruised. And actually, this turns out to be a pretty good situation. Their very first day, only a half a day, they make a buck sixty. That's right. Even despite the buckets that were rejected for bruising, they still netted a dollar sixty, which they're given a coupon valid for the money or which they could use at the local company store. That very first night, Ma's able to buy a couple of pounds of hamburger, some lard, some coffee, some sugar. All marked up at a fairly steep rate. As the lyrics to the old Negro spirituals say, I owe my soul to the company store. But it's all not peaches and cream. No, it's peaches and skitters. Oh. <laughs> that night, Tom, the curious one, wants to find out what those people were doing which necessitated cops to escort the Joad family into the ranch. So he walks down the farm road and goes out and talks to the guys out protesting? Actually, he has to lay on the ground, squeeze under the barbed wire fence, and then walk through a field in complete darkness to a tent. And he walks in to find... Who? The preacher Casey. Preacher Casey? It turns out he is a leader of the strike. He tries to tell Tom what's going on. And what is going on? Turns out the Jode family are actually scab laborers to defeat the strike. But how does it break the strike to pay the Jodes the five cents that they had originally promised to pay these other guys? Well, they're paying five cents for now. As soon as the strike is broken up, they're going to go right back to paying two and a half cents. And this is when you really get angry. Because Steinbeck tells you that if these big, huge companies are paying two and a half cents per barrel, 
they're actually getting a literal ton of peaches, and it costs them $1. Then they charge 15 cents for four peaches put into a can. Unbelievable. But let's get back to Tom Joad and Preacher Casey. What is Tom going to do with this information? Casey wants the Joads to join the strike. But Tom knows it's not going to happen because they're desperate for work and food. And that encapsulates the entire dilemma that these migrant workers face. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Well, obviously, Tom Joe tells the preacher, my family can't join you. But that's not really where this ends. No. During their conversation, they realize there are lynchmen coming to get them. They got to run. The company has decided instead of just breaking this strike, we're going to break these strikers. Right. Take out the leaders. Everyone else will fall apart. Well, what happens? They walk through a culvert and are immediately surrounded with flashlights on their faces. Now we're talking about Tom Joad and the preacher Casey. Correct. Right. What happens is Casey starts to say, you don't know what you're doing. You're trying to starve these people. He's just pleading to their humanity. Unfortunately, one of these lynchmen gets a little bit irritated by Casey. And so... Takes a swing with a hickory handle. And Tom, seeing the Reverend Casey dead in a puddle... Of his own blood. He gets so angry that he wrestles the pickaxe handle from the man who just killed Casey and uses it against him. Until he exposes his cranial ooze. Unfortunately, before Tom can get away, someone takes a swing at Tom and bloodies his face and completely crushes his nose. But Tom does manage to escape this. Right. He swims through a few ditches, climbs under a few fences, makes his way back to the house where he spends the night, but in the morning tells everyone what has happened and that he needs to hide and maybe he should run away. Clearly now the police outside the gates are looking for a murderer. Right. And they have a feeling that this murderer got marked up. And they possibly had a good look at his face with the flashlights in the night. Well... Does Tom leave his family and escape? Ma is adamant that the family not be broken up any more than it already has. So she comes up with a plan. They're not going to stay there anymore because, huh, who would have thought it? But the wages went down to two and a half cents that day. Well, sure. Now the strike has been broken. Right. So Ma says we're going to hide Tom in between the mattresses and we'll get out. Ildi, your last few statements really reflect a trend that's now occurring in this novel. You said, Ma decided this, and Ma decided that. Yeah, she's keeping her family together, is her sole concern. All right, well, let's get on with our story. Does she keep her family intact? Do they get out of this camp with Tom? Yes, they make it out of the camp. Things are going well. And just when you expect something bad to happen, something good happens. Finally? There's a sign. Cotton pickers need it. Cotton is one thing they're comfortable with coming from the South. Tom thinks, you know what? There's a culvert back there and some really thick weeds. I can hide out there. You guys can bring me some bread and other food at night, and you can work in the cotton. Looks like they had some decent-looking housing set up for you guys. This could work. Well, let's clarify that decent-looking housing. 
Okay, this is no government camp with hot running water and clean toilets. However, you do have 12 boxcars lined up. They are very functional because they do not leak rainwater. It is a solid structure with a stove to stay warm and dry. And each boxcar can hold two families, one on each side. Right. So in essence, 24 families can reside there for as long as the cotton is being picked. Well, how long is the cotton being picked at this new place? Until the winter. Tom's wounds are beginning to heal up. Al and Pa are able to get new overalls. Ma is able to squirrel away some of the money that they've earned. And they're even buying things like pork chops at 30 cents a pound every once in a while. And don't forget milk for Rosa Sharon, who's getting more and more obviously pregnant every day. Milk mixed with bacon grease for added strength. Ah, that's right. I forgot about that milk with the bacon grease. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, with the Joads living easy and the cotton high, I want to find out how our novel ends. All right, L.D. Scott, I jokingly said the cotton was high and our living was easy. And I was right for maybe about five minutes for the Jode family. Just about. In fact, those few minutes were so good that at one point, Ruthie and Winfield actually are given a piece of candy. Pa, while they were at the store, got Ruthie and Winfield a box of Cracker Jacks. They quickly run off to go eat it. Some of the other local kids see that they have Cracker Jack. And Ruthie's not always the most subtle or kind-hearted of little children, and she rubs it in, so they took it. Yes, she's a bit of a snot. And so she threatens that my big brother will beat your big brother up. In fact, he's already killed two people. Oh boy, I can't believe she brought that up. And he's hiding right now. But of course, this changes everything. Exactly. Ma is in a panic. That's right. Up till now, Ma has been insistent that no more of the family is going to break off. They are going to stay together no matter what happens. But this does change her mind. Right. Ma now realizes that because Ruthie has told about Tom, that people may start looking for him. She decides she has to go warn Tom and tell him to leave. And Scott, how does the story of Tom Jode end? When Ma finds him, he's hiding in the bushes underneath the culvert. He's used this time, kind of like 40 days in the desert, thinking about everything that the preacher Casey had been saying, and essentially he's made up his mind to finish what the preacher Casey started, to help bring social justice to the migrant workers. In essence, he's going to take over the leadership position. And as we've seen, once leaders arise, they're picked off pretty easily. But Tom is convinced that this is what he's supposed to do. But Scott, with Tom leaving the family, Rosa Sharon is actually about to welcome someone new into the family. That's right. The nine months are coming to a close, and they realize they can't go anywhere at this point. But before the baby's arrival, the rains come. Cotton fields, just like orchards, are typically in the lowlands. As the waters come down from the mountains, the levees fill up, and levees tend to overflow. And with all the rain, that's exactly what happens to this whole area. So now the question is, well, do they try to outrun the floods with a laboring Rosasharn or stay? And if they stay, they really have to convince other people to stay because they need help creating some sort of barrier so that they don't get flooded out of their boxcars. Well, do they stick together? They stick together, but the flood comes. They realize that where the water from the canals and the rivers would enter the cotton fields where they are staying, there's only one small entry point that if they build a levee there, they may prevent the floodwaters from entering this particular field. 
Sopa and a whole bunch of the other men try to build this levee. Which they accomplish. They do, but all of a sudden a big tree comes loose. An old dead cottonwood. Smashes into the levee and their entire day's hard labor is for naught. But like the turtle, they still have to keep going. Well, do they keep going? Tell me what happens with Rosa Sharon's baby. Well, Rosa Sharon has a pretty tough labor. Well, she's had a tough nine months. Malnourished, long roads, lots of sun, working in the fields, and the baby, as expected, is stillborn. They do their best to make Rosa Sharon comfortable. Ma decides that they cannot stay here any longer. The water just keeps on coming. And Al, who has found a girlfriend. Fiancé. A fiancé. Decides he is going to stay with her and her family. So the family's going to be further broken up. That's right. So Ma, Pa, Uncle John, Ruthie, Winfield, and Rosa Sharon wade through the waters in the field, get to the road, and head down towards the town. But where are they going to go? They don't know. They're looking for somewhere with higher ground that's dry, and they have no idea where that is. So all of a sudden they spot a barn that they think is uninhabited, and they make their way towards this barn. But Scott, it's not uninhabited. There is a younger gentleman and his not-so-healthy father already finding cover in this barn. Doesn't the boy beg the Joads to help my father? Can you get him some milk or anything? And as usual, Ma has an idea. They have no money, but Steinbeck writes, the two women look deep into each other, and Rosa Sharon says yes. As we all know, she has just given birth and has no baby to feed, so... She feeds the dying man. And essentially, it's on that brief moment of hope that our novel, The Grapes of Wrath, ends. The thought comes to mind that where God closes a door, he opens a window. Ildi, that's a great way to think about it. Thank you. Now, Scott, Ildi, we haven't had a chance to mention every scene or get to every character in our novel. So now's your opportunity to maybe mention a scene that we missed or remind us of one of your favorite characters. Ildi, do you have something? I do. There's a scene early on where Ma is getting ready to leave in the truck for California. She goes back into the house, which is essentially empty, and she grabs a stationary box, the box that she keeps all of her precious mementos in. Steinbeck writes, Among the newspaper clippings were the account of Tom's trial. She picked out the ring, the watch charm, the earrings, dug under the pile and found one gold cufflink. She took a letter from an envelope and dropped the trinkets in the envelope. She lifted up the stove lid, laid the box gently among the coals, and quickly the heat browned the paper. A flame licked up and over the box. She replaced the stove lid, and instantly the fire sighed up and breathed over the box. And this just killed me, because if I were ever in a fire, what would be the first things that I would grab to save? It would be the things that were in that box. Pictures, letters, irreplaceable things. The fact that Ma just takes a couple things out and burns the rest of it shows me how they really had to leave with absolutely the bare essentials. They really planned on starting again, but with nothing. Right. Scott, do you have a moment? I've searched high and low. There is one paragraph I've found, which I think is hysterical. Oh, good. (laughs) Well, please don't keep us in suspense. This is the scene where Tom and the preacher Casey have caught up with the muley at the old Jode family farm, and they're asking, where are my folks? And Tom, in an effort to describe how determined and strong-spirited his family is, 
tells one story about his mother. Oh, I know this one. Good pick. Steinbeck writes, I seen her beat the heck out of a tin peddler with a live chicken one time because he gave her an argument. She had the chicken in one hand and the axe in the other. She aimed to go for the peddler with the axe, but she forgot which hand was which, and she takes after him with the chicken. <laughs> Couldn't even eat the chicken when she got done. There wasn't nothing but a pair of legs in her hand. <laughs> Grandpa throwed his hip out of joint laughing. <laughs> that was a good one, Scott. I think that's where we're going to end today's conversation about the novel, Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Ildi, Scott, I want to thank you both for coming in and having this conversation with me today. I enjoyed it, Frank. It's been pleasurable and depressing. You're right. It has been both of those. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Ted, hello. Hi, Frank. Ted, before we talk about John Steinbeck, I have a question about the novel, Grapes of Wrath. I know that when it was published, it went right to the top of the bestseller lists and eventually won the Pulitzer Prize for Steinbeck. But at the time, it was also heavily criticized. Why was that? Well, the criticism had to do with the idea that his characterization was weak. The storyline was strong. The characters were not real. Well, were the characters real? Not only were the characters real, Steinbeck made the track with them. He was fascinated by this story. But more importantly, survivors of Weed Patch Camp, which is where this takes place, began talking about their experiences, and they matched what Steinbeck was talking about. Well, then let's turn our conversation to John Steinbeck. What was he doing at Weed Patch Camp? This was the final leg of the journey. If you're going out to that portion of California to work, Weed Patch Camp is where you went. Probably the nicest area you could be, and it was a hellhole. Why was he with these people? Steinbeck was a journalist. In fact, his work looking into this and afterwards was eventually published in something called Working Days, the Journals of the Grapes of Wrath. Steinbeck was dealing with one of the great stories of his time. Works Progress Administration was doing the same thing with photography. So he took the Dust Bowl trek from Oklahoma to California as a reporter? Yes. And as we sometimes see with great novelists, he was able to tell the story more truthfully in a novel than he would have been in any kind of nonfiction work. I don't know if he knew how to tell it. He was overwhelmed, mostly by the inhumanity. He was not bothered by the Dust Bowl, the poverty. I mean, this was going on all over the United States, one form or another. What horrified him was the social strata that had been established the owners of the land, then the people who worked for them all the way down to the migrant workers who were treated horribly and used to have to spend their money often in the store that was owned by the owner of the land. And then instead of becoming a newspaper story or a nonfiction work, it turned into the novel Grapes of Wrath? He spent a lot of time doing a lot of writing that was essentially throwaway. Finally, he figured out the structure he needed to be effective. His wife, Carol, who also later gave the title of the novel to him, sat down with him, and over the next hundred days, he'd handwrite the story, pass it to her, and she'd type it out for the publisher. I'm glad you mentioned the title. The readers and I never really got a chance to talk about the title, The Grapes of Wrath. His wife, Carol, and this is one of several wives, of course, he had, but the wife at that moment said that this story fits a line from the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored. And that vintage was rather bitter. Yes. But I'm glad we opened it and read it. Yes, Frank, but I'm glad we don't have to drink of it. That's right. Ted, thank you very much for coming in today and bringing endnotes on today's conversation. Always a pleasure, Frank. And I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. You're listening to Novel Conversations. Today I had a conversation about the novel The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. And until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. 
Novel Conversations is a production of the Front Porch People. Listen to more great conversations at thefrontporchpeople.com. Thank you for listening. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.